music to Hungarian uh, traditional stuff with Kurtesh from the album Deliverance. And that pretty much catches you up. Stay tuned for Grey Matters. Honor. Country. These three words define who we are. Duty. Friends and neighbors united for the common good, in service to others, and for the benefit of all. Honor. The deep-rooted faith that selfless dedication to a noble cause is right, just, and good. Country. A solemn vow volunteered to support our nation's people during desperate times. Mercy. In the midst of nature's wrath. Hope when all seems lost. Duty. Honor. Country. Yeah! Public Radio. WCBL. FM. Air Harbor. I just can't find the bay. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And, uh, well, Neil and Buzz, I guess the, <laughs> the celebration of the 40th anniversary of landing on the moon has uh, gone by the books and uh, we're on back into trivia land. Uh, Obviously, it's disappointing that the week was dominated by uh, this, what I call, pseudo-story about Henry Louis Gates getting arrested in uh, in his house. <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. Um, I guess a quick brain damage award to Sarah Palin. She had to have one more news conference. <laughs> it was a shambling, rambling event. Was it staged in front of a chicken decapitation? No, there? but apparently there were a thousand people outside giving her the rah-rah. And for her to, you know, go into a, a kind of an explanation, post, ex post facto, as to why she resigned, claiming, the, you know, that she was kind of doing it for the troops <laughs> and that they're over in Iraq dying for us. And then she dedicates her final comment to the troops with the admonition of, quit making stuff up. <laughs> it was unbelievable. Um, she's unbelievable. So good riddance to her. Hopefully uh, she will do a book tour and become a, a pseudo-celebrity, which is what... Do the I, Playboy's bread. <laughs> she, I, haven't, I can't believe she hasn't done that yet for money. Uh, but uh, quit making stuff up. I mean... That, that's the whole Good story advice. of the last 40 years of American history. America makes all kinds of stuff up. The, the Iraq War was made up. The Cold War The was Cold made War up. was made up. Vietnam was made up. Watergate. Iran-Contra goes on and on. People make stuff up all the time. Oh. Well, and, you know, keep but, this But it was her too. backhanded little right. attack on the, on the liberal media that's picking on her. It, uh, as I mentioned last week, the thing I overheard at the art fair, if you ever hear somebody say, oh, well, she's, you know, she's good. She'll be back. She's going to be our front runner. Just let them labor under that delusion. Because yeah. uh, anybody who assumes that that woman is cap uh, capable and competent 
to uh, be chief executive of anything uh, is a fool. Indeed. And uh, quit making stuff up. Maybe that's a admonition Wall Street should follow. I uh, actually spent the week uh, reading two books uh, that are of different uh, interest, but I just figured I'd mention them. The Financier by Theodore Dreiser. I don't know if you've ever read this. No, I'm not familiar with that one. He uh, is sort of a underrated American novelist. Early 20th century. Early Carrie 20th. is his most famous yeah, book. Yes, Sister Carrie is his most famous book, and The American Tragedy is probably his second right. most famous book. They're both quite interesting. But uh, some, uh, shall we say, literary critics think this is maybe the best American novel ever written about the financial crisis huh. uh, and how the stock market works. It's an interesting novel. It's got the usual Dreiser. Uh, he's sort of considered uh, as part of the school of American realism. And it was interesting to me that uh, he originally got recommended as an author to a publisher, uh, I believe it was Doubleday, but it was Frank Norris, uh, another American realist novelist, who wrote maybe the second most famous book about uh, American financial crisis called The Pit. Um, maybe you've seen that famous silent movie called Greed. Yeah, that's uh, based on his novel McTeague. Yes. Uh, he and also wrote The Octopus about the uh, railroad industry. Yeah, and this, needless to say, is a book about uh, financial speculation uh, on railroads uh, during the uh, the panic of 1871, 1870-ish. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the downfall of the protagonist, and, of course, there's a, a human drama scandal in it, and it's got some interesting characters. But I highly recommend this novel, The Financier, because it, it gives a fairly good description of how financial chicanery and manipulation of stock prices is, is part of how American capitalism actually works. And it's interesting because the protagonist ends up going to jail. I won't give out too much of the uh, details of the plot, but he goes to jail because he uh, there's a run there's a run on the banks, and uh, everything is is sort of precipitated by the the Chicago fire that uh, destroyed the city, and this of course created a panic, and then the panic fed on itself, and it's not unlike what we've witnessed uh, here in the United States in recent years. And it's fascinating to hear Obama, uh, while meeting with the Chinese over t uh, today and tomorrow and maybe e even later in the week while they uh, sort of determine the future of the uh, economic world as we know it, uh, talk about how, uh, you know, there needs to be a sort of readjustment of the global capitalist system. Americans need to save more and the Chinese need to spend more. That's mm -hmm. sort of the the easy, quick uh, prescription, because it's well known that Asians, as part of their cultural background, uh, save uh, incredible amounts of money. But the financial ruin uh, in, in the book, The Financier, is, is basically based on the same sort of over-speculation on railroad stocks, uh, not unlike the financial stocks. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the, the protagonist, Frank Cowperwood, I think it was his name, um, gets uh, sort of entangled in the uh, the mess, and it takes place in Philadelphia, and there's obviously some interesting stereotypical characters portrayed in uh, the novel itself. But uh, 
underrated book. Uh, so if you want a interesting no novel, uh, fictional approach to the uh, understanding the financial uh, crisis uh, of recent uh, uh, months and uh, years now, The Financier, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I've been reading uh, Louis Ferdinand Celine's Journey to the End of the Night, which is a sort of a bleak uh, uh, precursor to the beat movement, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, just finished the passage where he spends a few years in Detroit working uh, on the Ford production lines in uh, despair and spiritual oblivion. But uh, summer's a good time to get a lot of reading in. And... Uh, yeah, your Halliburton's Army book there we'll have to get to uh, perhaps another time. Yeah, that that is a sort of a, a journalist-slash-scholarly approach to the uh, truth about how Halliburton ripped off uh, American taxpayers to just unbelievable quantities of money uh, in uh, operating as a, a, quote, private contractor in the Iraq War. Well, they're talking about stop making stuff up. The the parcel of goods that the American people were sold, that it would be more cost effective to sort of, uh, you know, not let the army feed its own people, but to hire companies yeah. like Halliburton to hire other companies to prepare food and do laundry and just sort of like farm the work out is ludicrous on its face. Yeah, and Halliburton is part of this KBR and the and the power structure of the Dick Cheney uh, power axis and the neoconservatives. And one of the most palpable examples of waste, corruption, and overcharging taxpayers. And it's fascinating how we're having this debate about the health care um, bills. You know, there's there's all sorts of versions of the bill. So what comes out of it, who knows? But it's interesting to uh, listen to the Republican Party uh, object to this, saying we can't afford this and we mm -hmm. don't have the money for it. But, but they, they raise no questions about uh, the fact that the the fundamentally the cost and and uh, obviously there are some uh shortfalls and and uh uh shortcomings I should say uh, of the Obama healthcare plan but he's letting congress hash this out and when you s hear about an estimate of a trillion dollars over 10 years to get the quote public option available that's not even what we're spending in Iraq per year right and we don't hear any uh, discussions about how that's going to be financed Right, that's not unreasonable, a trillion no. dollars over a decade. Yeah. You think about all the money that's been pissed down a hole over Iraq. It's, yeah, because uh, it's, it's roughly a trillion dollars we've already spent, and we don't hear any elaborate discussions of uh, how that's going to be paid for yeah. uh, by the loyal opposition. Instead, they're making comments that this will be... Uh, Jim DeMint, don't call me demented, uh, senator from South Carolina called the health care uh, debate Obama's Waterloo. <laughs> and as he put it in his press conference, hey, this isn't about me. I've got a great health care <laughs> right, plan, <laughs> and I have a doctor around me all the time. <laughs> Should I get it achy? <laughs> right. Well, maybe he should listen to WCBN and get some of that vitamin F. Vitamin FF for free farm. <laughs> so, well, yeah, more on Halliburton. Uh, I noticed the author there, uh, Pratap Chatterjee, uh, I'm familiar with that name. Mm -hmm. He's written a couple of uh, very good books, one called Iraq Incorporated, yeah. about this you know, whole process beyond just Halliburton, 
But I don't know if he's the guy who also wrote the Inside the Green Zone book. I believe he is. Um, that looked about the phenomena of the green zone. Oh, and, right. And, I think um, that might have been a different fellow. Um, but you're right. He did write Iraq Incorporated, a profitable occupation. And, uh, yeah, one of the most egregious examples was how Halliburton and constructing, uh, you know, America over in Iraq where they had the Taco Bell and the, you know, the Burger King, Burger King and Dunkin' Donuts and whatever other corporate thing that they could think of uh, was was billing the Pentagon $86 per sheet of plywood when apparently right. in the United States it cost something like $12. So the markup rates were phenomenal, and uh, all of these contracts were approved by um, underlings in the Pentagon working for uh, Donald Rumsfeld and Dick Cheney because they sort of took over the Pentagon in their own uh, private corporation uh, sort of way uh, with no bid contracts yeah. and these things where there were things called cost plus contracts specifically written in which the uh, Halliburton KBR Corporation could bill the Pentagon a certain amount of money plus two to three percent mm -hmm. and of course the billing generous rounding up generous rounding up and of course the billing was where all of the in other words the two to three percent was the official profit but the the excess profits were coming from the billing itself and just extraordinary markups on all sorts mm -hmm. of things. And, of course, we've heard the horror stories about electrocutions over there, um, inadequate training, uh, the actual kidnapping of foreign nationals, and incredible exploitation of uh, um, nationals from places like the Philippines, Indonesia, and, and many other Asian countries uh, in which uh, they were given the jobs, not the Iraqis. Right. But uh, many of them were actually put onto uh, air, you know, airlines and literally impressed mm -hmm. the way the British used to uh, find sailors in American port cities back uh, as a sort of causes belay of the War of 1812. Th these things still go on. Right. But we're in the 20th, 1st century. And, well, it makes uh, you wonder how the... Uh you know, America's fighting forces in World War II, you know, defeated Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany without the generous support of Taco Bell and the convenience of a Burger King. <laughs> different world. Different world, different uh, different leadership. Very much so. I think it's a, a fair way of putting it. Um, Churchill, Stalin, and uh, FDR had different ideas about how to run a war. George Bush, uh, well, he's from the Sarah Palin Graduate School of Foreign Policy. <laughs> I can see Russia. Soon to be opening up in Wasilla, Alaska. <laughs> master's program. <laughs> After all, if they're going to have a, a master's program in Beetle... <laughs> Beatlemania, I, I was reading something amusing about how the um, the Beatles, uh, there's a, a school in Liverpool now. That has, oh, right. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I forget the, the name of it. Well, but. that actually makes sense as a piece of cultural history yeah. that there's, you know, yeah, there are cultural implications and ramifications there. And that, that seems reasonable to me. But uh, I'm, a, I'm a Beatles fan. So. Oh, me too. <laughs> Love the Beatles. Yeah, I'm working on my own book on that. So I'll have to... Uh, Keep mom on that for the time being. 
Well, in other pseudo-scandals, the saga of Henry Louis Gates. Obviously, this was a sort of a throwaway question that Obama, at the end of his press conference, probably wishes he had stuck to his original statement of, I don't know a lot of the facts, so no comment. But the idea that somehow his comment that the police acted stupidly does seem to be supported by the facts as we know them. And... You know, the outcry and the continuing fact that this is a story in which everybody is trying to... This sounds like a genuine misunderstanding that turned into an an unnecessary escalation. And having dealt with a lot of police officers as part of my job in Ann Arbor, I find the the police uh, to be romantically portrayed in the American media. They like to provoke people with comments and shall we say, haughtiness. <laughs> <laughs> haughtiness is uh, one way of putting it. Something yeah. Aggressive tra- insolence might be another. <laughs> a trait that Sarah Palin uh, exudes so, so magnificently on the campaign law trail. enforcement's in, in her future. Well, but, she's uh, standing up for the common folk. But, yeah, I mean, really. Well... A couple of things uh, come to mind on this. Uh, first of all, it's really ironic that here we are next week on Gray Matters talking about this because on my way to the show last week and on my way home, there was a lot of police activity at a house on Packard, and I saw in the paper the next day that there was a, a break-in ah. and that uh, the two guys who were seen going into a basement window, um, like a delivery driver or some utilities worker saw the two guys go into a basement window and phone the police. The police go to the house and one of the guys pretends that he lives there. He gets in bed and he's fully clothed. So his his alibi was not really uh, well, well uh, executed there. Just taking a Ronald Reagan nap in the (laughs) afternoon uh, with all my clothes on and my shoes too. Uh, So those guys, uh, you know, were caught breaking into this house and I don't know anything about the you know, ethnic or racial background of the uh, burglars there. But, um, you know, somebody saw somebody sneaking into the basement window of a house. Looks like a crime. You know, one guy goes in. That's fine. You open the front door, let your buddy into your house. You forgot your keys. Two guys going through a basement window. Looks like a crime. I'm not sure what it was about Professor Gates going into his house that made it look like a crime. I guess the door was stuck. He had to kind of thump on the door a little bit. Yeah, the the quote was, the caller was suspicious after seeing one of the men, quote, wedging his shoulder into the door as if he was trying to force entry. And apparently there was a problem with the key or the door jamming or whatever. And he apparently rents the house from Harvard. Um, so that's, they give it to him as a gratuity, I'm a little unclear. but Right. I mean, that's a little bizarre that someone, okay, what's the address? Okay, well, that's... There's a professor who lives there. Can you describe the guy who you saw busting in? Oh, sort of an older black guy. Yeah, that's probably the guy who lives there. Uh, The fact that they actually arrested him once he was inside the home and once it was clear that it was his house is is simply bizarre. Uh, The uh, news conference of law enforcement uh, union members uh, suggested that it was Professor Gates who made it a, a racial incident. That, to me, is ludicrous because I think it's pretty well demonstrated and borne out by the facts that uh, there are all sorts of uh, examples of racial uh, profiling. Sure. And uh, people getting pulled over, stopped, questioned, oh, gee, uh, here's a African-American man running down the street. 
and the cops sort of instinctively assume that he's done something to be running from or, or, or you know the cause for the running. Uh, to me, it was just a matter of time before something like this came up that Obama would have to deal with as a black man. Yeah. Uh, and so the fact that it happens with a, a internationally recognized professor, a literary critic and scholar uh, makes it supremely ironic. There's all this talk now about what's called the teachable moment. I think this is very much a teachable moment. There's no uh, question about it. Racial profiling exists. Uh, police officers have a tendency to be howdy. And, of course, they have a very dangerous job and have to protect themselves. And so there's part of the demeanor that is uh, the psychological makeup of that self-protection. But uh, I think it was probably pretty clear that uh, Professor Gates didn't pose any threat of violence. He's explaining, this is my house, this is where I live. Uh, the whole thing is bizarre. And I think, as you say, that Obama's original comment about the police be behaving stupidly is kind of borne out by the facts. Um, that having been said, as chief executive of our great nation, of course, he can't be seen to impugn police officers. Right. And so his other delicate balancing yeah. act. And his other mistake, of course, was that Obama is naturally what I call sort of gregarious. He wants yeah. to answer questions. Indeed. And that's and, good. That's nice to have. And that's president. a good thing. And if you once the media starts to take the 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 phrase or the clause out of context which they've mm -hmm. done successfully and tried to turn this into a big brouhaha which is to me much ado about nothing it's and, at the end of the day it's just, yeah it's quite clear it was a misunderstanding possibly an honest misunderstanding as the saying goes possibly not we don't know um sergeant crowley um Nice name there, dude. Um, you know, he, he's obviously not a well-read man because Henry Louis Gates is a fairly recognized African-American distinguished person. His, his text is required reading uh, in any master's program. He, I mean, he's actually on television quite yeah. a bit. Um, I wouldn't say that he's as well-known as Michael Jackson, <laughs> Barack Obama, or, say, Jesse Jackson. Or, or Shaquille O'Neal, but he's a well-known sure. public figure. Uh, so maybe Crowley, uh, as part of his uh, teachable moment, can maybe read a book or two by Henry Louis Gates. And, and I don't think it's Professor Gates who made it a racial incident. I think it was the person who probably phoned in to the police. Well, I, I've actually... they Today they sort of released a synopsis. And see, once again, this gets into this issue of, okay... Is this the real text? Is this mm -hmm. yeah. are they revealing everything here? She basically didn't. She 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 actually called the, one of the per people Hispanic looking, and didn't see the identity of the other one. So there wasn't any uh, racial aspect to this case off the get go from the caller because I did hear her, and she's been now identified as a Portuguese. American, um, who happened to be walking by um, the, the initial report in the New York Times calls her a white female caller. And obviously, I guess if she's Portuguese, you could, you know, we don't know her uh, motives whatsoever. She was probably just uh, sort of, well, something looks kind of weird over there. Yeah. And she didn't see the whole thing, so she didn't know what was going on. And obviously... Uh, it uh, it escalated, and Sergeant Crowley, 
just to quote his version of events from the initial uh, New York Times uh, reporting on this uh, on the 21st of uh, July, said that uh, he uh, Sergeant Crowley said that as he told Professor Gates he was investigating a possible break-in, Professor Gates exclaimed, why? Because I'm a black man in America and accused the sergeant of racism. Quote, while I was led to believe that Gates was lawfully in the residence, Sergeant Crowley wrote in the report, I was quite surprised and confused with uh, the behavior he exhibited towards me. <laughs> well, I'm sure that Professor Gates was probably kind of confused about what the heck's going on. Right. And a little upset. Yeah. Am I to be, <laughs> as he put it, um, he never, according to uh, Gates's lawyer, never touched Sergeant Crowley, but did, quote, express his frustration at being subjected to the threat of arrest in his own home. So, okay, Professor Gates lost his cool a little bit, probably. I think that's pretty obvious. Yeah. So, yeah, good that they're going to go have beer at the White House with Obama, and maybe the media can move on to more important things. Yeah, but I, again, I think it was a matter of time before something like this happened that Obama was going to have to figure out how do I be a, both uh, just an African-American sure. man you know, in America, with an opinion, with a view, with a comment, and also, you know, president. Yeah. So we this it's happened. We've gotten out of the way. His his idea to invite them over for a beer, excellent idea. And of course, it was interesting that part of his the rest of his comment was that if he'd said he'd he'd done this in Chicago, he would have been shot. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course joked around about breaking into the White House. <laughs> Because he forgot his key. So, I mean, at the time, I thought Obama actually answered the question pretty effectively. Yeah. But then everybody gets offended by the word stupidly. Right. Well, okay, used the wrong adjective. You should have used hastily or foolishly or rashly or... Incautious. Yeah. Et cetera, et cetera. Jumping to conclusions. But, uh, yeah, don't always trust the police report either. That's they're, for sure. They're always going to spin the, their behavior and the... Stop making things up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> the theme of the week. Sarah Palin maybe has started a new radio talk show. <laughs> Stop making things up. Yeah, but now that this has happened, let's forget about it. And, whatever you know, she said. <laughs> and, you know, have that teachable moment where people who haven't yet been made aware of the problems of racial profiling in America... Uh, can maybe have this as their eye-opener. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, and, and the, the sad thing about this whole event in my my book was that it basically just totally overwhelmed the purpose of the original press conference, which oh, was indeed. Obama's basic, you know, emphasis about the seriousness of the health care reform issue. And uh, actually the fact that he had a primetime press conference... You know, how long has it been since we've had a primetime press conference from the president on an important issue that affects all Americans, not some farcical, you know, imperial conquest on the other side of the world? Bush didn't really have very many press conferences at all because he was comfortable speaking only in front of military bases with a teleprompter. Yeah. And so the fact that Obama was fielding questions on what is rather a dry topic, yeah. but something of great importance to America's future and the well-being of children, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and the ratings were actually pretty good for it. 
Yeah, and and the issue itself, I mean, he's he's just right on the money that this will eventually bankrupt the United States if reform is not made. Yeah, it's ridiculous that um, this is treated once again by uh, some members of the opposition in Washington as a potential Waterloo moment. I mean, <laughs> for Obama, um, because they think Obama's slipping in the polls. Um, so. Uh, I, I I just think that's silly. So uh, I, Obama's on the right track. They need to carve up some sort of compromise. They need to get something done for once. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it would be, um, you know, I think that Obama's got a broad uh, concept of what needs to happen and what should happen. And he's, I think, oh. wisely, you know, the fundamental problem as I see it is that the health care system in the United States is profit-oriented. I uh -huh. do agree that they sh if it was my personal uh, plan. I would just wipe everything out, take all the insurance companies, put them out of business, um, and, and have a single-payer system with, you know, cho choice, using your own doctor and whatnot. Well, the whole insurance industry is uh, a scary place uh, and a confusing place and in a way it's just sort of like legalized gambling it's all speculation you're paying these high premiums in the hopes that you'll never have to you know pull back on them and then of course if you do uh, get a serious illness well then all those payments that you've put in over the years sort of the, the industry sort of grudgingly retains them and well we're not sure that what you have merits this sure and so the whole thing is a lose-lose proposition for the consumer and it's a crisis and i don't have the exact uh, data with me because obviously this is a subject we can revisit but the profit margins of the top 10 insurance companies uh in this decade it, it, it's criminal what they've mm -hmm. been getting away with this is like the halliburton nonsense this is yeah. cost plus um and obviously their goals are to insure healthy people <laughs> Right. And uh, whenever possible, deny benefits. And they they do this all the time. And we have a system that's just completely broken down. I might add, by the way, because of the fiscal irresponsibility of uh, the GOP over the last uh, two and a half decades, uh, the solvency of Social Security uh, under the Bush administration was reduced by 20 years. And, you know, Social Security is in much better condition than Medicare. Yeah. And we're already seeing with these uh, state budget crises all over the uh, United States that Medicaid has, uh, you know, got some serious problems right now. Yeah. So the idea that this can, you know, kick the can down the road and we can stall this out and and uh, do nothing uh, is just simply, in my opinion, not an option. It, there's, there needs to be something tangibly done here that improves the solvency of the situation. Uh, because the idea that uh, we can continue to buy private uh, health insurance for, you know, working families in the United States of America, I mean, it's just, it's not realistic anymore. These costs are just too high. Well, these costs are part of the reason that General Motors and Ford ended up in the situation that they did. And let's remember that AIG, which, of course, is the most egregious recipient of the TARP money, we've, we've given this insurance company, quote-unquote, $170 billion. I was reading the other day that um, we may be paying as much as $441 billion to this company to keep it solvent, and we still don't know 
the sort of the gory details of these uh, derivatives and credit default swap contracts that they wrote out that are, you know, keeping these other uh, the whole financial house of cards afloat. Um, how or why the stock market went up, you know, five percent last week is is incomprehensible to me. I mean, yeah, there were 